The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us, danproftshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter, at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. If uh, history and studies are any guide, one thing we know that will come from the uh, George Floyd killing in Minneapolis and the respondent uh, protests and investigations, now uh, news coming over the transom that... Uh, State of Minnesota is going to investigate the Minneapolis Police Department. Jason Riley, uh, Wall Street Journal editorial board, writing about um, a study that uh, very few people are talking about. It happens to be right on point, but that doesn't matter because we're uh, just whipped into a political frenzy here. Policing the Police, a 2016 study by Roland Fryer, Harvard economist, and his co-author, Tanya Devi. Racial differences in police use of deadly force to the surprise of the author who Riley spoke with, as well as many in the media and the left who take racist law enforcement as a given. Professor Fryer found no evidence of bias in police shootings in 2016. His conclusions have been echoed by researchers at the University of Maryland and Michigan State University, who in a paper last year wrote, quote, we didn't find evidence for anti-black or anti-Hispanic disparity in police use of force across all shootings. And if anything, found anti-white disparities when controlling for race-specific crime. Uh, Mr. Fryer said uh, in an interview that although it seemed clear to him racial disparities in police shootings stem primarily from racial disparities in criminal behavior, police departments continued to be investigated, and he suspected these investigations weren't having the intended effect. When he did a formal look at, at, look at it and a paper on it, he found that when police were investigated following incidents of deadly force that went viral, like in Ferguson, in Chicago, in Baltimore, now perhaps in Minneapolis, although that's not obviously covered by this study. What happened after that? Police activity declined and violent crime spiked. Mm -hmm. Uh, Homicide goes up considerably, total crime goes up considerably. What happens, he said, Mr. Fryer, is that the police effectively pull back, they don't stop doing their jobs, but they become less proactive and curb their interactions with civilians. This is not to say police departments shouldn't be investigated, Fryer added, but investigations have to be done with police, not to police. Riley adds editorially, one alternative is to target individual officers from wrongdoing rather than putting entire departments under a cloud like, say, we've done in Chicago. The activists, this is Riley writing, the activists tell us what happened to George Floyd is commonplace and racially motivated, but the empirical evidence points in the opposite direction. I would never have guessed that if police stopped putting in the effort, the homicides would change like this, said Roland Fryer. You hear people say, oh, we want uh, to police our own neighborhoods. Get out. No, you don't want that. I guess I always knew it was a foolish idea, but I didn't realize it was this deadly. Harvard economist Roland Fryer. How much has that been part of any conversation you've heard on the cable news channels or even within your particular community? Uh, Well, somebody who knows this all too well, because she wrote a bestseller on it, War on Cops, is Heather McDonald. She's the Thomas W. Smith Fellow at the Manhattan Institute, a contributing editor of City Journal and uh, New York Times bestselling author of another book, The Diversity Delusion, How Race and Gender Pandering Corrupt the University 
and undermine our culture. Heather, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thank you, Don, for having me on. The phrase that we're hearing over and over and over again with respect to police departments, in spite of the research that uh, we just poured over, is systemic racism. That's the problem with police departments in big metropolitan areas, systemic racism, and even in smaller ones. The cops go where the crime is. What we have in this country is not a police problem. We have a crime problem. And if the cops ignored the cries of the good law-abiding people who say, please, I need protection from the drug dealers, I need protection from the youths who are hanging out in my lobby, smoking weed and selling drugs, trespassing, that would be racist. It used to be, you know, maybe a hundred years ago, the police said, well, you know, there's higher crime in black communities. That's just sort of the way it is, a fact of nature. And they paid less attention now because we're data-driven and the police are acutely conscious of when people beg them for police protection, they go where crime is happening. They don't make those decisions themselves. They hope against hope. Every time they get a shots fired call that for once they're going to be given the description of a white suspect, it almost never happens. In Chicago, whites and blacks are each about 30% of the city's population. Blacks commit 80% of all shootings and murders, whites about 1%. A black Chicagoan is 50 times more likely to commit a shooting than a white Chicagoan. That is facts that the police are dealt with. They can't control it. And if you don't want the police in your community, the solution is to step up for fathers to get involved, raise boys that have a sense of self-control, but the cops, again, it's not their decision. They're going to help the children. You know, in, in Chicago, in 2016, there were 4,300 people shot, one person every two hours. Two dozen children under the age of 12 were shot. Tavon Tanner, 10-year-old boy, the, the bullet ripped through his kidney and spleen. A two-year-old shot on Father's Day. So 4,300 people shot. The cops shot about, in Chicago, shot about 25 people that year. That's 0.6% of all shootings. The, the, the problem in the black community is that there is a, a percentage of it, a small percentage, who are committing the crimes. That's what, that's what police are responding to. Uh, with respect to uh, the bad officers in police departments, of course there are some. I mean, you know, New York, 35,000 cops. Uh, Chicago, 12,000 cops. Of course there are going to be some officers. It's a matter of accountability. And and so what about uh, what uh, Jason Riley suggested, uh, going after individual officers rather than these sort of federal consent decrees or these declarations about systemic racism in a department that requires everybody to undergo implicit bias training and so on and so forth? What's the approach to deal with bad officers? Well, that's fine. It's not as if that doesn't happen. Uh, you know, departments do go after bad officers. The reason for these consent decrees is that somebody persuades the staff attorneys in the civil rights division of the justice department which are you know they've been there for 20 years they themselves are very left-wing that there is a systemic problem in a police department and the bad officers are a result of a pattern or practice of police abuse 
And so that's what leads to these destructive consent decrees. I mean, the Chicago consent decree is over 200 pages long and is filled with these draconian paperwork deadlines that have to be met, you know, to an absolute T about filing reports that when officers are desperately needed back on the streets to actually respond to to real uh, problems, which is which is violence. It's violence. You know, if I, I'm just I'm I'm always stunned at the racism of the mainstream media. If there were two dozen white children shot in Chicago, uh, that would be a national story. Uh, but but if if a black child is shot and it's not by a cop, the the media turns its eyes away. Right. Or or the the flip side, if it's a, a black person, even uh, uh, black officers that have been killed this week. I mean, they're covered. But I mean, you're, you're not going to most people will never even read, much less remember the name of the 77 year old retired St. Louis police captain who was killed yesterday morning or the Oakland, uh, the, the federal security officer in Oakland who was assassinated. They won't pay any attention to that. Those people will just come and go. Uh, but but everybody will remember the name George Floyd. And I'm not saying they shouldn't remember the name George Floyd as an incident of bad policing. But but it but it's so disproportionate. And so it distorts your understanding of what's actually happening. Right. Most people have no idea of what residents, law abiding residents of inner city neighborhoods have to put up with because there's virtually a, a ban on. I would say the Chicago Tribune is actually one of the best in actually covering at least in their online edition, the shootings, the New York Times, it's just a complete blackout. Uh, there's, there's nothing. Fortunately, we have the New York Post here. But still, of course, I don't think there's any dearth of attention on bad officers and bad shootings. But there is a complete indifference to understanding what is the driving force in policing today? She is Heather McDonald. She's the Thomas W. Smith Fellow at the Manhattan Institute, contributing editor of City Journal, New York Times bestselling author of The Diversity Delusion, How Race and Gender Pandering Corrupt the University and Undermine Our Culture. Heather, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks, Dan. I appreciate it. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show following on our conversation with uh, heather mcdonald author of the diversity delusion talking about who these radicalized agitators are, as well as some of the sort of useful idiots that are uh, animated by these agitators. Again, small percentage of the overall populations that are protesting, larger percentage of those that are rioting. Um, but what's the animating disposition here? You have to understand it, I think. Uh, it reminded me to pull uh, up a piece from a couple of years ago by uh, this at uh, Quillette.com called Sad Radicals. It's an article by uh, a student at the time who was one of these uh, Marxist radicals uh, until he, uh, I don't know, got mugged by reality. He was deprogrammed. 
This is a, a young man named Connor Barnes, and he writes, When I became an anarchist, I was 18. Depressed, anxious, and ready to save the world. I moved in with other anarchists and worked at a vegetarian co-op cafe. How cliche. I protested against student tuition, prison privatization, and pipeline extensions. I had lawyers' numbers sharpied on my ankle, and I assisted friends who were pepper sprayed at demos. I tabled zines, lived with my chosen family, quote-unquote, and performed slam poems about the end of the world. While my radical community was deconstructing gender, monogamy, and mental health, we lived and breathed concepts and tools like call-outs, intersectionality, cultural appropriation, trigger warnings, safe spaces, privilege theory, and rape culture. What is a radical community, like the one Connor was affiliated with? He defines it as a community that shares both an ideology of complete dissatisfaction with existing society due to its oppressive nature and a desire to radically alter or destroy that society because it cannot be redeemed by its own means. The uh, ideology and people within it left Connor burned and disillusioned. Uh, That's what led to his deprogramming. And he watched as the left became even more woke than it was during his sojourn as a anarcho radical. But uh, that that uh, nature of the radical community, right? Something I said uh, yesterday's show: dissatisfaction with existing society, complete dissatisfaction because it's oppressive, desire to radically alter or destroy because it cannot be redeemed by its own means. This is the claim: because of my identity, I have a legitimate claim to power. If you do not accede to that claim, then I get to burn society down. And that's what you're seeing on the streets around the country. Uh, as Connor Barnes says of the community he was a part of, toxicity in radical communities is not a bug, it's a feature. The ideology and norms of radicalism have evolved to produce toxic, paranoid, depressed subjects. And he goes through. What happened? He restates that he was a depressed and anxious teenager in search of answers when he became an anarchist. Radicalism explained these things that were not manageable issues with biological and lifestyle factors. They were the result of uh, living in a ca- in capitalist alienation. Uh, he cites uh, uh, one other anarchist. The whole world is based on effing misery and capitalist systems were not meant to feel joy. And so this uh, anarchy or anarcho radicalism, Marxism, uh, identity, identitarian politics has all the answers. Uh, he writes uh, as to an alternative for radicalism, for the disillusioned radical. Commit talent and energy elsewhere. Flee the cult. And uh, it is a cult. It is a cult. Don't believe so? It's a religion. I mean, in the sense that it's a religious cult. Politics is the religion. This is a group of many hundreds in Bethesda, Maryland this week with uh, hands up like they're, you know, in, uh, in fellowship at a church and uh, repeating these lines. About racism, anti-blackness, or violence. About racism, anti-blackness, or violence. I will use my voice in the most uplifting way possible. I will use my voice in the most uplifting way possible. And do everything in my power to educate my community. I will love my black neighbors the same as my white ones. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what they're in the business of love. Uh, going back to Connor Barnes, radicals should learn to abandon false truths. The only way to escape dogmatism is to resist the calcification 
and sanctification of values, their own moral rectitude, and to learn from the wisdom of different perspectives. He uh, cites uh, Jonathan Haidt, a heterodox academy founder. There are grains of truth in opposing political positions. Right. Radicals do themselves a disservice by seeing the world of thought outside the radical monoculture as tainted with reaction and evil. And so their ideas are not battle tested. They became even more hardened and dogmatic the more they're challenged. Uh, they're, they're challenged with respect to their black and white vision of the world and their own, again, moral superiority. That's a claim on power so that they can, through hate, bring love, through intolerance, bring tolerance, through the unanimity of opinion, bring diversity of views, all of these contradictions. Uh, and uh, this is at the highest reaches of academia. Of course it is. The executive director of the Center for Social Justice at the Berkeley School of Law. Uh, she has an op-ed in Time magazine. Black and brown people have been protesting for centuries. It's white people who are responsible for what happens next. All monoliths based on your skin color. You get that? I, I, she talks about how she um, often starts her discussions with law students by asking them, how do you know you're white? When I ask students how white students how they know they're white, the answer is almost the same, silence. While st- white students often stop short, unable to identify and articulate the cultural, political, and economic and historic clues that tell them they are a part of whiteness, let alone what being a part of whiteness truly means. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the answers are all around you if you're willing to look and listen what whiteness means as if that should matter. But it's playing the game of the identitarian. And by the way, this is also all of this is why. President Trump, even if he was inclined to be a fascist, as he's accused of being, could never be. You understand the. As Holman Jenkins writes in the Wall Street Journal, a very good piece, and he has a great line. Fascism doesn't arise from men with funny mustaches. It arises from institutions buckling to the mob. Not funny mustaches, institutions buckling to the mob. And so what, uh, So as you're watching, uh, which institutions are buckling to the mob or, frankly, already allied with the mob? Which institutions are there that are lorded over by conservatives, by free marketeers, K through 12, public school systems, academia, the arts, corporate boardrooms, major sports. Is there uh, Hollywood? I mean, I mentioned the arts, but at entertainment media, is there any institution, any civic institution in America that is not dominated by the left? So when it comes to who has raw materials at their disposal to trend towards fascism, is it the big government polls and big blue cities and blue states, or is it conservative? The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network.
Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. And uh, coming up, we've got Will Riley, a uh, political science professor at Kentucky State University, uh, who has been um, quite uh, prolific on Twitter. So I'm going to get to some of his comments before we bring him on. We won't have enough time to cover as much with him as I'd like. But uh, I want to begin with um, this uh, undated video from George Floyd, uh, the George Floyd who was killed by the Minneapolis police officer. Just the comments that he made, it has to be somewhat recently, about uh, the younger generation, about young people. And remember, this was a man in his late 40s. Our young generation is clearly lost, man. Clearly lost, man. Like, like I don't even know what to say no more, man. Like, you youngsters just going around, just busting guns in crowds, kids getting killed. You know, and it's clearly the generation after us, man, that's so lost, man. You know, man, I came at the Houston me yeah Florida the truth man right there because he could bust a gun man I knew it was crazy then I ate saying this here man you know what I'm saying and condoning bro you know what I'm saying and like half them young shooting them guns go home and they knees shaking at night but they don't show it to nobody because you know they ain't tough then hey man come on home man one day it's gonna be you and God you going up or you going down you know what I'm saying mm. So this sort of a common sense approach. Uh, let me uh, use Will Riley's uh, sort of translation, I think, of some of what George Floyd may have been pointing to, uh, you know, from a more academic perspective, as he's a political science professor. He uh, tweets, what if contemporary and by the way, Will Riley uh, teaches at a historically black college, African-American gentleman from Chicago, teaches at a historically black college. He tweets, what if contemporary racism, contemporary racism? has almost nothing to do with problems in the black community. These issues are due to past bigotry with respect to poverty, housing, or cultural factors like crime. And this ghost hunting for powerful Klansmen and police genocides in 2020 is an utter waste of time. Yeah, what if? Uh, What if, uh, for example, you were pro-black, as Will Riley writes, because um, uh, you want black people to succeed and uh, achieve what they aspire to achieve. He uh, tweeted out, encouraging strong fathering or getting the old SAT up over 1,100 would do a hell of a lot more for the black community and for Latino and poor white communities than any amount of fighting cultural appropriation. What if the whole sad, radical agenda we were describing before the break was completely counterproductive in point of fact it uh is regressing minority disproportionately minority americans with respect to their economic and professional aspirations mental health aspirations even uh riley goes on to tweet four things i think about racism there obviously is mild but real racism in in america agreed Like every human society, studies find that 8% of whites wouldn't vote for a qualified black president. That's from a Pew 2016 poll. Blacks are 6 to 9% less likely to be rented a nice apartment, etc. So is there racism? Does racism exist? exist? Of course it does. However, Riley goes on, it can't be ignored that America has spent an extraordinary amount of blood and treasure attempting to compensate for racism in the past century. Brown v. Board desegregated schools in 54. The Civil Rights Act made discrimination illegal in 64. Affirmative action dates back to 67. 
Almost all arguments for institutional racism vanish when subjected to competent scrutiny. Uh, D'Souza and O'Neill, both back in 95, point out that blacks make 82% of what whites do, but that gap closes to basically nothing if you adjust for age, living in the South, SAT score, etc. Interestingly, it's the same situation as we've talked about in this show before with the supposed gender gap in wages once you account for continuity in the workforce and uh, educational attainment and so forth that disappears. Uh, Riley goes on, in the context of this actual history, we don't see oppression today as much as a complex mix, mix of advantages for whites and people of color. A black or Hispanic student has a two to 300 point SAT advantage over an equally qualified white kid when applying to college, for example. In short, racism exists here like everywhere, but claims of vast structures of oppression generally collapse if you adjust for anything but race. And race is just one of 12 to 15 things that correlates with privilege or income. Most social justice arguments are just plain wrong on the merits. Also, most other court traits seem to affect income and happiness more than race does. The one time I administered a competent quant survey of privilege, race had the sixth highest effect on the metric after social class, female sex, being gay, urban versus rural status, and other other uh, uh, effects, other metrics. Other effects on the metric, I should say. There's interesting perspectives from Will Riley, which is why we're going to have him on the show coming up next. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, and uh, again, to have these uh, conversations about uh, the protesters and the rioters, two distinct groups uh, based on behavior. Uh, you have to get the uh, nomenclature right. We had a bit of a re-education from Nicole Hannah-Jones, the founder of the 1619 Project, the uh, Pulitzer Prize winner and fictionalist, uh, specific area of expertise, fictionalizing American history. Got a bit of a re-education from her yesterday that uh, stealing things is not stealing, it's a symbolic taking, invoking Martin Luther King in the context of the 1960s, and she's so good at contextualization. Uh, Well, she was on CBS News. You're going to be hearing a lot more from her during these times. And uh, one of the things we also have to understand is what is violence and what is not violence. What you think is violence turns out not to be violence. For example, property rights. Some may say property rights are human rights. Nicole Hannah-Jones is not one of them. When we look at people rioting and looting, and no doubt some of the victims of the looting are going to be businesses that are African-American businesses. Um, How are we to interpret what we see there? Um, you know, the president called people thugs. What is it that we're looking at? Or, or, and maybe it's not just one thing. I think, one, we, we need to be really careful with our language. Um, yes, it is disturbing to see property being destroyed. It is disturbing to see uh, people taking property from stores. But these are things. And violence is when an agent of the state kneels on a man's neck until all of the life is leached out of his body. Destroying property which can be replaced is not violence. And to put those things, uh, to use the exact same language to describe those two things, I think really um, it's not not moral to do that. So 
Yes, I, I think any reasonable excuse me, any reasonable person would say we shouldn't be destroying other people's property. But these are not reasonable times. No, they're certainly not. And uh, I'd love a follow up with uh, Miss Hannah Jones if she was uh, willing to come on this program. But that requires a little bit more intellectual courage. And I think she possesses. Uh, so would, would this be an example of violence? Uh, I want you to hear from Jasmine Kelly, the 19 year old sister of 22 year old Italia Kelly, who was killed, murdered in Davenport, Iowa, over the weekend by a protester. Listen to Jasmine recounting the death of her sister. It wasn't from cop. I don't get on live and I don't care about this Facebook. But my sister is gone because one of you, a protester, shot my sister. A protester, not even the police, because you guys, I lost my sister. I lost my sister because you. Was that an example of violence or is that just part of living in unreasonable times? For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Will Riley, associate professor of political science at Kentucky State University and author of Hate Crime Hoax, How the Left is Selling a Fake Race War. Will, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Yeah, glad, glad to be back as always. Uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones, um, theft is not, take, is not uh, theft, it's symbolic taking. Uh, violence is actually nonviolence. It's uh, very Orwellian. Yeah, well, there's a very old line. Uh, someone has to have a bunch of advanced degrees to say something that nonsensical. And that basic idea goes back, I think, to the ancient Greek sophists who used to practice their debate skills by arguing that black is white and up is down. You can never run a mile and so on. I mean, at the most basic level, I mean, I attended law school at the University of Illinois back when I lived in your home city of Chicago. And I mean, throwing 15 MacBooks into a bag isn't symbolic taking. It's the crime of felony theft. I mean, burning a store after you beat up the defenders is not some kind of nonviolent Gandhi-like behavior. It's the felony of arson and aggravated assault. So, I mean, for a very, very long time, the idea that people would violently defend their businesses against rioting mobs was, although obviously you'd prefer, you know, peaceful de-escalation or whatever, but was the absolute human standard. And the idea now that it would be immoral to ever do that because the life and body of a looter have ultimate value is is a very strange one, I think, to many people. Yeah, and, uh, you Including know, me. And, and, it, and it gets uh, more strange, too. I mean, this is perhaps why we had the response to the COVID-19 outbreak that we had, the mission creep of public, quote unquote, public health professionals. Uh, NPR story, protesting racism versus risking COVID-19. I wouldn't weigh these crises separately, say public health professionals. This uh, letter that was signed by uh you know, some, uh, I don't know, a few dozen, uh, up to 100 uh, public health professionals. White supremacy is a lethal public health issue that predates and contributes to COVID-19 was among the pronouncements in that letter. I mean, I, I think, again, this gets into almost the Orwellian use of language. I mean, if you remember the great book 1984, I mean, one of the lines that keeps being repeated is we never fought a war with East Asia. The last nonsensical right. thing we're telling you is different from the current nonsensical thing we're telling you. So I actually, unlike a fair number of people on the center and right, I don't minimize COVID-19. I mean, it's a dangerous viral disease. Yeah. I mean, it might kill, say, 300,000 people this year, which would put it in about third or fourth place as a cause of death. Nothing wrong with wearing a cloth mask, making people feel comfortable. But I do think that the presentation of COVID-19 was one of these panic-generating narratives that used very specific modern media techniques to terrify people. Um, and I think this because from a survey research perspective, if you ask people, for example, how old is the average COVID-19 victim, they'll say things like 35 or 40. 
In reality, Dan, as I'm sure you know, the average age of a COVID-19 casualty is 81. Mm-hmm. Uh, Free Op, the center-right think tank, broke down the fact that I believe 44% of them right now came specifically out of the nursing homes. The idea that stopping healthy young people from going to work in factories was necessary to fight COVID-19 was almost certainly not real. CDC finally did a meta-analysis of some of the studies that I, you, and other people have been debating online for a while and concluded the actual, quote-unquote, IFR for COVID-19 isn't 3% or 4%. It's 0.26%. In contrast, flu is 0.11. So that narrative itself verged on hysterics. And now we're encouraged to forget that narrative. I mean, I would have to validate this. I'm not entirely sure this is true. But a lot of the names on that letter of healthcare professionals saying, you know, white supremacy is the real virus, look fairly familiar from the papers that had been panicking the country about COVID-19. So you, you now see a switch to, well, you know, perhaps wear your mask, but you can go outside and protest COVID-19 is not that bad. The real disease is whiteness. And the media immediately pivoted alongside those professionals, and now COVID-19 has completely vanished from the headlines. My advice would be, you know, of course, with the exception of your show, it's sometimes a good idea to turn off the TV and the radio and go play basketball or golf or just sit in a park. If you can. There's a very yeah. conscious attempt, I think, to scare people, to keep eyes focused on the glowing monitor, and that's pretty bad for you psychologically. He is Will Riley, Associate Professor of Political Science at Kentucky State University and author of Hate Crime Hoax, How the Left is Selling a Fake Race War. Will Riley, thanks so much for joining us. The more you'll know, this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Hollywood to the rescue with some uh, helpful hints and uh, intellectual moral guidance. Start with uh, Sharon Stone. She took to the interweb to offer some guidance on how to create a safe room in your home if you're in an area unlike her where rioting is occurring and you're not sitting on your lanai uh, enjoying the wind sweeping off the water. Sharon Stone, who, by the way, is well past her basic instinct days. Here we go. How to create a safe room. Hello, people. Okay, so we're in the middle of a riot uh, and if you are anywhere where you feel unsafe in your home, this is what I want you to do. We're gonna make a safe room for you. Probably the safest bet that you have might be your bathroom because you have maybe the least windows or you're the most tucked in there. And if that's the case, the least windows and the place that you can lock yourself in the most, If it is your bathroom, you want to put um, some blankets and pillows in the tub in case you're going to need to sleep there. If if you feel like you might get broken into or you have nowhere else to go, especially if you're trying to self-quarantine and you want to take a cooler, you want to put water in there and a few, you know, non-perishable things that you can eat, some fruit or some protein bars. And you want to put your cell phone or your computer chargers in there and your computer, your extra cell phone. And you want to try to board up the window that's in that room if you can, if you're in a rioting area or an area that is locking down because they fear for rioting. So 
this is what you do. You make a safe place for yourself. Don't panic. And if you think you're going to panic, take any panic medications or anything that you would sure. like to have in there. Yeah. And Lock just have that place Xanax. prepared for yeah. you or you and your family. Okay? All right. Okay. And All stay right. safe. Thank you. Don't be overreactive. Okay. This will come and go so like calming. all things do. Okay? All yeah. right. Okay. All right. Thank you. Thank you for that infantilization, government commissar style. Very, very helpful. Uh, pillows and blankets in the bathtub, uh, board up the window if there is one, and uh, put some fruit in a cooler. Got it. Thanks, Hollywood. Oh, and Seth Rogen, uh, you may know him from many, many terrible movies, including the uh, most recent offering uh, with uh, Charlize Theron, who should be embarrassed to ever star opposite Seth Rogen. What was her agent thinking? Uh, he uh, Instagrammed... Uh, Black Lives Matter image or meme and uh, said uh, to any uh, anti-Black Lives Matter followers of his, you can F off. You don't deserve my movies, which is, uh, of course, uh, encouraging people to oppose Black Lives Matter in the hope that they will not be subjected to Seth Rogen movies anymore. This is Dan Shaw. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us, danprofshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter, at Dan Prof and at Dan Prof Show. There seems to be a bit of a disagreement uh, over how New York City Police Department uh, resources and officers were utilized and otherwise deployed between the governor and the mayor, Governor Andrew Cuomo, at his presser yesterday. Not mentioning the mayor by name per se, but suggesting NYPD didn't do its job on Monday night, but not blaming NYPD, blaming the decisions made by the civilian political leadership on resource allocation. They did, the police did not do their job last night, but you have 38,000 NYPD. Uh, they have protected the city before in these situations. Well, what about the NYPD not well deployed? Will they need the National Guard? I mean, you had, uh, by the way, you also had this shooting yesterday in Crown Heights where that has been that was wildly misreported initially. The record was corrected by NYPD. But of course, I doubt that will win the day. Anyway, first report, 13 year old was shot 19 times by NYPD. No context. That was that was a story. and, And it was trending on Twitter immediately. The fact A 34-year-old allegedly shot someone, police responding to the shot being caught on one of the security cameras. They respond. They see the shooting victim. Uh, He's taken to the hospital. They see the alleged shooter in close proximity to the victim hiding behind a tree with his gun drawn and trained on police. They tell him repeatedly to drop his weapon. He doesn't do it. 
So then the 10 officers responding to the shooting opened fire on him. So yes, 10 officers fired 19 rounds, probably almost simultaneously because they all felt they faced a lethal threat because you have somebody pointing a gun at you and not acceding to a police order to drop the weapon. Apparently some, including uh, some uh, criminal defense attorneys, I saw law professors, believe that uh, a policing and criminal relationship should be like a French duel where you get to shoot first and then if you don't kill me, I get to shoot back. I mean, it's the most absurd conversations that are going on, really, the most absurd positions being taken to contextualize and really countenance violence and barbarism. It's uh, rather sickening, to be quite honest. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by a veteran of the NYPD, Bernie Carrick, 40th Police Commissioner of the New York City Police Department, New York Times bestselling author. Bernie Carrick, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. So uh, what about uh, the seeming disagreement between uh, Governor Cuomo and Mayor de Blasio with respect to uh, NYPD's performance? Well, listen, here's the bottom line. They are burning down the city. That is the mayor's responsibility. Uh, The mayor is responsible for New York. The mayor is responsible for overseeing the NYPD. The governor is right that they have done it in the past. I've done it. The police commissioners before me have done it. But at the end of the day, it has not been done right over the last week. And I honestly, I don't blame the police department as much as I blame the mayor. The mayor has said he wants a soft touch. The mayor is basically... On numerous occasions now since this thing started, the mayor's gone after the police department. Uh, You know, you had an incident a few nights ago where there was a video footage of a cop that drew his gun on a crowd to move them back from other cops. The mayor said, I want him suspended. And that shouldn't have happened when in reality, when you extended the video, you see a guy take a boulder right to the back of the head. Yep and smashed this cop in the back of the head. And the cop that drew his gun was trying to get them away from the other cop. When in fact, he should have shot and killed that guy. The bottom line is the cops are scared to death to use force. They're not using force. They're getting beaten. They're getting pummeled because the mayor and the governor and the attorney general keeps talking about investigating the cops. Why don't they investigate the thugs that are doing this? Why aren't they investigating them? So I blame the mayor for the soft on touch mentality, but I also blame the governor. You know what? You've been watching this for four days. If the mayor can't do his job and you said he's not doing the right thing, you've said it consistently every day that it's not going well. Well, then why aren't you doing your job? Because your job is to get the mayor out of the way, bring somebody in that can do the job, and get the job done because they are burning down the city and you're allowing it to happen. This is going on to day five now or something. I've lost track at this point, but every single night they're terrorizing the city and the cops are basically being deployed and doing what the mayor wants. And the mayor is a complete failure. I, I just want I want to get to this letter. This is sort of a remarkable letter, at least from my perspective as a as a layman, as a civilian. The president of the Sergeants Benevolent Association in New York, Ed Mullins, writing to sergeants, we have no leadership, no direction, and no plan. I know you are being held back and used as pawns. I understand I'm one of you. I am doing and I will continue to do everything I can to protect you and the people of the city. So I'm asking you to please stay together and stay strong. 
hold the line and protect each other just to make sure that the sergeants know he's receiving their text messages. He reprints some of the text messages he's received. These text messages, total nightmare last night. The executives of the NYPD are going to get a member of the service killed. They have no plan set in motion. You have inspectors and chiefs running around the city with no direction. I've been at the riots since the beginning. I've been hit with eggs, bricks, rocks. My officers are depleted, tired, beat up. Our officers and supervisors are getting hurt every night doing their jobs without any support from our PC and mayor. I'm so angry about how this has been handled. It's bringing me to tears with frustration to write it. We have pepper ball guns, tear gas, other anti-criminal riot apparatus such as horses not being deployed, and so on and so forth. Listen, I've been talking this all, all week. We have the biggest mounted unit in the country. Where is it? It's not being used. You know why? Because Mayor de Blasio wants to be soft. He wants a soft touch. Those are his words. We have to have a soft touch. Really? You don't have a soft touch when they're trying to burn down your entire city. And they are destroying everything in sight. And it's all the same thugs that we have a problem with on a daily basis. And now they've merged on the city. They're being instigated and pushed by this Antifa group, which is a domestic terror group, Black Lives Matter, Antifa, calling for the assassination of white families, all this craziness. You know what? Keep letting it go, and they're just going to burn down the entire city. Uh, with respect to uh, the riots, this has also been the occasion of big city politicians like ours uh, in Chicago to uh, resuscitate some of the uh, big ideas that came from some of these consent decrees, like the one the Chicago police have voluntarily adopted at the at the direction of the mayor. Uh, and uh, Lightfoot, in her State of the City address yesterday, talked about uh, community teachers uh, to uh, squire police around the neighborhood to introduce them to the neighborhood, talked about officer wellness programs, uh, help officers deal with trauma on the job, and procedural justice training, which is sort of sort of like half-baked uh, implicit bias training. Um, are those important reforms in terms of uh, making the police more effective as a law enforcement body? Those are a joke. The bottom line is, the cops that work those communities, they know the people better than anybody else out there. They don't need teachers. They know who the good guys are. They know who the bad guys are. You want to do something for the cops? Stop handcuffing them. Put together a federal task force and stick it in the middle of the south side of Chicago. And let them go find these 290, these crazies that committed 92 shootings and 27 homicides over the weekend. Stop handcuffing the police talking about systemic racism, that's a farce. All this systemic racism stuff is completely insane because when you look at the national numbers, I, I want you to think of this for a second. There are 360 million people in this country, 360 million. Last year, the police department arrested about 10 million. Out of 10 million people during those arrests, the cops were involved in fatal shootings 1,004 times. 1,004 times, 10 million arrests. Yeah. Out of those fatal shootings, 19 white people were unarmed. 19 were shot and killed. Nine were black. 19 were white. Nine were black. If you listen to the national discussion, cops are slaughtering black men and women every day of the week. That's insane. That's insane. It's not true. It's a lie. And they, these statistics come from the Washington Post. They come from the FBI uniform crime numbers. 
I'm not making them up. No, we've These are talk, real statistics. We've talked about them. I know at 0.01 percent police-involved shootings, and then it goes down from there in terms of uh, uh, illegitimate shootings. To your point, he is exactly. He is Bernie Carrick, 40th Police Commissioner, of New York City Police Department, New York Times best-selling author. Uh, Bernie Carrick, thanks again for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. You know, it was just uh, six months ago, uh, end of January, that uh, the great journalist Jim Lehrer passed away, McNeil Lehrer News Hour. And uh, I recall on the occasion of his passing, the publication of his rules of journalism that he codified. Let me give you an example, or just a couple of uh, examples from Jim Lehrer's rules of journalism. See if you find them virtually anywhere in practice today. Do nothing I cannot defend. Do not distort, lie, slant, or hype. Do not falsify facts or make up quotes. New York Times can't even abide that rule. Assume the viewer is smart and caring and as good a person as I am. Journalists who are reckless with facts and reputation should be disciplined by their employers. Acknowledge that objectivity may be impossible, but fairness never is. I am not in the entertainment business. Talk about uh, an era that seems many, many epochs ago. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Carl Cannon, he is the Washington Bureau Chief of Real Clear Politics, realclearpolitics.com, executive editor of Real Clear Media Group. Carl, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Dan, you're making me feel very old when you read those rules, and it's not because I haven't had a haircut in three months. <laughs> yeah, well, it's a perfect uh, segue to your piece about uh, cable news 40 years after uh, Ted Turner brought CNN to Atlanta and to the nation. And where do we find ourselves uh, with cable news networks uh, and and really, uh, uh, but print and journalists as well, blogs as well, that uh, do not abide any of uh, Jim Lehrer's uh, rules, as far as I can tell. No, and they don't even really try. CNN still pretends to, but MSNBC and, and Fox News, well, Fox, a little different, Fox in different category, but MSNBC doesn't even pretend to. I mean, they're, they're part of the resistance, and they admit it. In a way, that's preferable to what CNN does, which is, act like MSNBC, but pretend it's acting like Jim Lehrer. Right, precisely. And so, you know, the 24-hour news cycle, 24-7 news cycle with the cable news networks was going to make us a better informed, a more educated citizenry, and a more thoughtful, uh, deliberative citizenry when it comes to uh, making choices about politicians and public policy. Is that what happened? Uh, it's Well, if you believe that, then you believe that Facebook and Twitter has made us love each other more. Yes, right. Uh, you know, Dan, the business model in newspapers, which is what I knew best, collapsed. And this really hurt. It hurt everything. It hurt local reporting. It hurt, you know, institutional memory. The best parts of newspapers sometimes were the religion writers and some of the, they let all that go and, and they're hanging on. And it's been a stress. But in the TV world, it's a, little, it's a little different. They've had those pressures. But really, if you think about it, what they've decided is that a fragmented audience is what they want. And so this is especially true... I mean, Fox News was a, a kind of a corrective. 
they said were fair and balanced. And they said it a little bit with a wink and a nod, but what they were really saying wasn't that everything on our network will be balanced, is that we're, we're going to be balanced to this dominant liberal narrative that's right. in the three news magazines, the three networks, all the major big city newspapers. And people understood that. You know, it, there were you know tens of millions of conservatives who, who were looking for a place to go. And so they had this. And that's worked okay for a while. CNN was doing hard news. MSNBC was failing. And in an effort to make itself relevant, it decided it was going to be the left version of Fox News and much less news, much more opinion than Fox News and much harder, more partisan than Fox News. Let me put it that way. Partisan pro-democratic party. There's a couple of problems with it. The first is it's like heroin, man. You've got to keep up in the dose. You know, mm -hmm. you get people hooked on this. And, and, and if you think about it this way, Dan, and I don't mean to be too harsh, but these people make huge salaries. You know, the, the networks, Chris Cuomo and Rachel Maddow and, and, and Sean Hannity. And if they're fomenting discord for money, really, I mean, just break it down. That, you know, that's not very patriotic. That's, they're not really helping the country. I, I gave a speech this morning to the Rotary Club of Crystal City, Virginia, freebie, you know, just in, a tele on Zoom. And they have this, this mantra at the end. They say, they ask, you know, is it helpful? Does it make people feel better? Is it true? Yeah, problems? right, right. Yeah. I thought, boy, that's that's a quaint idea, you know? You know, but is it? I don't think it is a quaint idea in the sense that I think that's how, um, you know, regular people live on a daily basis and interact with one another. The problem is that you have these carnival barkers that distort everything. So I, I said on the show yesterday, if you weren't in a race war before this weekend, you're still not. Right. I mean, so good for you. you. That's good. What, what you good. see on TV isn't how you live your life. You're not in I'm, I'm not in conflict with people of any particular race or disposition or whatever. And neither are most people. And so you're still not. But what they've done is distort the the fissures and distort the extent of certain problems beyond all proportion and make it seem like something is intractable that may not be. Well, I, I agree with that. Listen, according to the Washington Post, and the, on this subject, the Washington Post has done very good work, nine unarmed African-American men were killed by police in this country last year. Well, I submit to you that's nine too many, and it's a problem. And, we, and the, the problem that we have with poor police training and excessive force on these police forces has been a national problem for some time. But when you make it a Black Lives Matter issue, when you make it a racial issue, that's actually not only not an attempt to really deal with the problem of better police training, it gets in the way of a solution. It's almost as though the people pushing this nerve don't really want the problem addressed because most people right. killed by police are white in this country, not black. And, right. and these chokeholds that the LAPD went away from 15 years ago or 20 or 30 years ago now, you know, they shouldn't be used. But, but you could have a conversation that was honest, and it could be pointed. You could have protesters. You could you could be angry, but to make it a racial issue, I I fear that gets in the way of a solution. No question, and 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 it's like you won't take yes for an answer. I mean, what ninety seven percent of people agree that uh, the officer in the George Floyd killing uh, committed a crime and should be prosecuted, but you won't let me agree with you, right? Because it's not about justice for. Uh, George Floyd and uh, and consequences for that officer, which are being visited upon him in real time. It's about all these other grievances that have been manufactured by people who have a ideological agenda they're trying to prosecute that has uh, maybe a tangential connection to justice in this case, but only tangential. Well, and, and the other thing that you're seeing, I think, 
you, you see these people in the streets looting and things, and this opportunistic. I mean, there's some other things at play there, and we and we all we all know it. And one thing is, you know, you want to say to these people, not just the looters, but the peaceful protesters too. You, night after night, day after day, why aren't they at work? Oh yeah, I remember because they're not allowed to go to work. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and 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 you know, you have school the, school, the educational establishment now has been preaching for a, a, a generation that you know America's a racist country, and and so so you're, you're teaching people not to love the country and not to love their neighbor as themselves. So you know, without fathers and with a generation. Of, uh, the youngest, the Gen Z generation, not going to church as much as the older generation did, and with the public schools teaching them sort of contempt for America instead of reverence for America, you've created a, you've had a tinderbox. You know, someone lit the fuse, and and all these things coming together. I I think it's time to sort of retrench and and start insisting that our candidates and our media people, you know, um, demonstrate a knowledge of civic education. For the New York Times to say that the American Revolution was fought to preserve slavery, I mean, that's just, that's a, that's like something out of a Soviet textbook, you know. Yeah, we, that's, some, that's something that gets you a Pulitzer Prize. Well, it's, and now, well, now they want to put it in the schools. And, you know, some people, some courageous people have to stand and say, stop. And say, look, you know, and, you know don't call me a racist. I want, I want history taught honestly in this country. There's nothing racist about that. He is Carl Cannon. He's the Washington Bureau Chief for RealClearPolitics.com, Executive Editor of Real Clear Media Group. Carl, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Anytime, Dan. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Writing in the Washington Examiner, Bruce Yandel offers employment growth is in the basement, as is industrial production, capital spending, travel, and tourism. This leaves the big unanswered question. When will the coronavirus recession hit bottom and begin to generate meaningfully positive economic activity? Begs uh, prompts, I should say, some other questions, too, like does anything he described matter? to the markets, to uh, the populace at large that seems uh, blithely unconcerned with 20 and 30 percent unemployment at the state level, in addition to uh, many states, including my home state of Illinois, operating at a fraction of its capacity in terms of openness. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by the aforesaid Bruce Yandel, contributor to the Washington Examiner's Beltway Confidential blog and uh, distinguished adjunct, uh, adjunct fellow at the Mercatus Center, George Mason University Dean Emeritus of Clemson University College of Business and Behavioral Science. Bruce, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Glad to speak with you this morning. Yeah, so, um, you know, everything's fine except for all the macro numbers that uh, reek of Great Depression. We are certainly, uh, I think, walking on bottom right now with prospects for smaller negative numbers as we progress through the year. But I do think we're at the bottom, and of course we have learned a lot in a relatively short time. That is, this, that we're talking about something that's about 20 weeks old now in terms of the virus hitting us and spreading, doing terrible damage, sadly killing a lot of good people. But now we have tried to adopt remedies, and the remedies involve money, printing it, what I call helicopter money, just dropping it out in people's backyards. But better than $3 trillion has been spread around, and so the question becomes, 
when will the money have an effect? And until that money starts chasing some goods and buying them, uh, it's still going to be slow go. Well, here, here's the thing. Um, report out this morning, projection, 2.7 million jobs lost in May. Uh, you know, that is unsurprising given we have 40 million first-time unemployment filers over the last 10 weeks. But, you know, everything is, uh, all these bad numbers are taken uh, as, yeah, that was expected. Yeah, that was expected. Okay, well, some things that may not be expected, at least among the body politic, are, for example, a, uh, a significant recovery that also features a significant additional permanent job loss. So those people who think they're going back to their jobs after their unemployment benefits run out in July, or at least the enhanced version of them, uh, may be very surprised. And we may be dealing with uh, companies that are more profitable, certainly Fortune 1000 companies that could be more profitable, better looking balance sheets at the end of this, but with double digit unemployment rates for many, many months, if not years. Yes, and the reactions are still being felt. That is what you're touching on there. There are firms that, in a sense, are cranking back up, the automobile producers, for example. But then as they crank up, they realize, hey, we've got to meet new standards. We want to meet new standards so that we can maintain a helpful environment. And that involves using fewer people. We've got to get more distance in the plant, but somehow we've got to produce automobiles with that plant. And so there's still discoveries being made with respect to what employment recovery is going to look like. And a lot of people, understandably, don't count themselves as having lost their jobs, but they think of themselves as furloughed. And so that means that some of the numbers that are generated in terms of by the Bureau of Labor Statistics telling us how many people are unemployed or what the unemployment rate is, those numbers are probably pretty sorry numbers because they involve self-revealing by individuals over telephone surveys when someone says, are you unemployed and looking for work? And that person who thinks of herself as furloughed and not looking says, no, I'm not. So they don't get counted as unemployed. So the numbers we're looking at are probably really worse than the numbers themselves. That is, the situation reported by the numbers is probably worse than what the numbers tell us. And you think people have been sort of frozen in place, too. So they've got uh, the stimulus check and uh, they've got unemployment benefits and they haven't had anywhere to spend the money, as you point out in, in your Washington Examiner pieces. Oh, well, when the economy reopens, if they're not getting back to work, then, you know, they're, they're going to feel a different sort of reality, aren't they? The thing that I'm keeping my eye on, or one of the things, is cash balances at all of the banks in the United States looking at that Federal Reserve data, the total amount in checking accounts and the total amount in savings. And that has really skyrocketed, going almost in the exact opposite direction as retail sales. That and also looking at restaurant utilization activity. Uh, uh, I want to pick it up right there uh, when we come yeah. back, talk a little bit more about what recovery may look like and what some leading indicators are, as well as... Uh, uh, discussion about what the CBO is projecting about recovery. More with Bruce Yandel, the distinguished adjunct fellow at the Mercatus Center, George Mason University, right after this. This is the Dan Proft Show.
Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're talking about uh, the road to economic recovery with Bruce Yandel, contributor to Washington Examiner's Beltway Confidential blog, distinguished adjunct fellow at the Mercatus Center, George Mason University, and Dean Emeritus of Clemson University's College of Business and Behavioral Science. And Bruce, before the break, we were talking about uh, maybe some indicators of of recovery, the the steady climb back, hopefully, to pre-pandemic growth levels. And you were talking about, for example, uh, the... Um, uh, restaurant patron uh, patronage in in places like uh, Arizona and Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Uh, they they follow a sixty thousand restaurants worldwide, and and so it's possible for you to use, one to use Open Table to find out about the availability of a table or a seat in a restaurant. And so every day, Open Table provides data for the previous day's level of openness by state for some cities and for a number of countries. And and right now, uh, based on June the 2nd, Illinois was still 93% closed in terms of restaurants. Chicago was 99.8. Then you get over to Cincinnati and it's 82.8 closed. Or you go down to Houston and it's 69% closed. Or if you really want to take a long walk, go over to Munich, Germany, and it's 46% closed. Mm-hmm. So there's wide variation in the extent to which things are beginning to open up where people feel comfortable both on the business and the customer side, and they're getting out. And, of course, a lot of this reflects state rules and regulations in an attempt to make the world a safer place for all of us. But that's just one crude measure that that tells us, in a sense, how hard it is to get an economy restarted while it's very easy to stop one. So we've gone through the stopping phase. We've built a command economy that is responding to rules and orders and so forth. And now this sputtering engine is trying to come back to life again. So it is a slow and somewhat torturous process. The Congressional Budget Office, uh, now I'm about to give their projections over the next decade, so all the usual caveats about the accuracy of projections uh, over a decade, but nonetheless, CBO uh, lowering its projection for 2020 to 2030 U.S. economic output, signaling that it may take the economy a decade to recover from the self-inflicted response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, projecting cumulative nominal output will be $15.7 trillion less than it previously stated in January over that 10-year period, suggesting that GDP growth is not expected to recover to pre-pandemic levels until the fourth quarter of 2029. How much stock do you put in those relatively uh, bleak predictions? Well, in trying to put dimensions on our economic world right now, it requires a good, a, a relatively brave individual because what they're dealing with is so complex. We are trying really to describe and forecast the behavior of a biological system, the virus itself. Then when we try to predict that, we have to try to predict the political response to that virus. Will we shut down tighter? Will we open up? on a state-by-state basis, then when we get beyond those two exercises, we say, now, let's think about this thing that we call our economy and how it normally reacts to changes in demand and prices and interest rates and so forth. I think it's extraordinarily helpful for Congressional Budget Office and others 
to do the best they can and then lay out some numbers for us. But I think they're best for discussion purposes as opposed to planning purposes, where someone may be saying, well, I'm going to place a bet in terms of expanding a plant or contracting one on the basis of those numbers. There's a lot of soft ground underneath the numbers, and generally speaking, the forecasters tell us all of that in the preamble to the numbers when they present them. Uh, another uh, George Mason-oriented uh, economic thinker, Brian Kaplan, remarked recently, telling government to err on the side of caution is a recipe for severe oppression. Individuals, in contrast, have every right to personally err on the side of caution. But in the early weeks of the crisis, when risk information was scarce, erring on the side of caution was reasonable, uh, but it, is, it became unreasonable as more information became available and we have been slow, the political institutions and the, the public officials have been slow to uh, react. It's uh, very much what uh, some have suggested, that uh, once you uh, jump into a lockdown, it's very difficult to find your way out because all of the incentives are to maintain lockdown so you can continue to go before your, your respective press course and tell everybody how many lives you're saving. Yes, yes, that's a very important point. Uh, uh, politicians, uh, people who are in the public eye, understandably tend to be risk-averse. People in the bureaucracy, even more so, even more risk-averse, typically. And I'm, sp I'm speaking here on the basis of analytical numbers and work that people have done to measure those attitudes. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but people who survive and flourish in the bureaucracy do, don't do so on the basis of taking risks and coming up wrong. They do so on the basis of not taking risks and coming up right or either in silence. And so we do have that. We certainly have that as a, as a uh, characteristic of the process that we're observing now, which gets back to that point I made a few minutes ago about how hard it is to restart an economy. Right, because, you, you know, it's... it's it, under the fallacy that the economy really is like a great big machine uh, with on and off switches, and, right. and we'll heat it up over here and turn it down over here, and we'll get things going in Houston, and now let's check over to Cincinnati, and then, well, let's send a little bit more money over here to people who are unemployed. That is, we tend to take on a, a, a sort of thought process that says this thing is just like a very complicated engine. Well, it, it is not an engine. It is indeed complicated, but it's an engine that is being driven by billions of decisions that individual actors make. And they, they have a way of changing their mind and coming up with innovations and new ways of doing things. And, and we're still caught trying to deal with that economy that we left when it started sinking. And in a sense, people say, we won't recovery. We won't get recovery. We'll get another economy, and it won't necessarily look exactly like the one we left. Yeah. When we come back with Bruce Yandel, I want to pick up on uh, the uh, phrase political leadership and why it turns out to normally be an oxymoron. More with Bruce Yandel when we return. The more you'll know, this is The Dan Proft Show.
We're back with Bruce Yandel, Distinguished Adjunct Fellow at uh, the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. And to the point uh, you were making before the break, Bruce, politicians are always telling us who they're not. Right. And they say, you know, we need leadership. It's time to lead. Um, they're telling us what who they are not, the qualities they do not have, because, as you say, whether it's in the administrative state or the one of the other the, the, the formal branches of government, the executive and the legislative, they're forming at the back of the parade when it's safe to take a position. Generally speaking, very few politicians actually leading based on principle, based on. Uh, uh, you know, calculated risk like an entrepreneur would to to do the best you can with imperfect information, knowing you're always going to have imperfect information and you have to plot a course based on the most likely scenario, not the worst case scenario. That's right. And, and you know, the uh, Quinn, there's, there's always a bootlegger Baptist phenomenon in a situation <laughs> like this because it's just characteristic of how we work politically. Uh, and and so the Baptist component of this problem is the component that says people are dying. This is still risky. We've got to be careful. We've got to take care of the people. We've got to have even more ventilators than we ever thought we would need. Right. And then the ventilator manufacturers say, you are right, brother. Uh, we really need to crank up, and what about a few billion more masks to go with it? Mm-hmm. But then when we get to the point of, well, let's legislate and do something to send everybody in America a check, uh, instead of targeting those funds a little more precisely to that sector of the economy which is suffering most, it goes to everybody. Well, everybody is per- perhaps deserving of some bail out too. We're all, in a sense, caught up in this thing. But we know with a great deal of precision the characteristics and even the names of the people who got it in the, got it in the neck on this. These are the employees at the hotels, at the restaurants, in the tourist area. That's where the majority of the jobs disappeared. But we're spreading the funds broadly for, if I would say for political reasons, for bootlegger reasons, uh, riding on that sort of Baptist phenomenon is this is the opportunity to do a lot of good. And if the $3 trillion we tried the first time doesn't seem to get it, let's go for another three before waiting to see how this thing is going to pan out. He is Bruce Yandel, contributor to the Washington Examiner's Beltway Confidential blog, distinguished adjunct fellow at the Mercatus Center, George Mason, and Dean Emeritus of the Clemson University College of Business and Behavioral Science. Bruce, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your perspectives. Great talking with you. Thank you for having me. Take care. He's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us, danprofshow.com. 
That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter, at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. Good piece by Daniel McCarthy and The Spectator. This riot is brought to you by Nike. You saw the uh, Nike store on Michigan Avenue in Chicago get looted over the weekend. This is a victory lap for a moral revolution in education, one that has created a mythology in which police and other traditional authorities are automatically assumed to be evil, while young vandals who riot on the pretext of social justice are wholly innocent. Why are the police reluctant to put down the mayhem in the streets? Because they're not allowed to. They answer to politicians who are afraid of being called bad names in the press and who need the support of the rioters' upper-middle-class enablers. The enablers include not only Democrats, but a great many elite libertarians and non-Trump Republicans. And not only the media and academy with their known liberal bios, but also corporate America, which brings us to Nike. This just proves Nike is the footwear brand of the revolution. That cool, edgy looter you see with his liberated Nikes is a walking advertisement, better than any money can buy. Others who admire the authenticity and passion and living and living purity of the looter, white suburban teens, for example, or leftist Ivy League lawyers, will go out and buy Nike so they can be part of the revolution, too. I absolutely agree with him. Absolutely agree with him. For more on uh, this uh, celebration of uh, anarcho looting, uh, we're pleased to be joined by Roger Kimball, editor of The New Criterion. Roger, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. I don't own Nikes myself. Not yet you don't. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, you want to be part of the revolution, or do you want to be uh, torn asunder by no, it? I, w- I want to be. I want to be part of civilization. Uh, well, I don't know if that's going to be an option. Um, so, it may not be an option. Your your uh, your take now. I I want to be careful because I've been uh, reeducated by Nicole Hannah Jones. I want to be careful in terms of just throwing the term violence around because I understand that looting is not violence and damage to property is not violence either. So we need mm-hmm. to be very careful about the terminology here. Right. Well, you know, uh, uh, Calvin Coolidge, a sort of smart chap, pointed out many years ago that at the end of the day, property rights are human rights. And uh, the spectacle of uh, these privileged thugs paid for uh, often by people like George Soros, uh, getting their marching orders and a little cash to go around and smash up other people's property is uh, it really it's out of some kind of dystopian novel and uh, you know you can people riding the tiger think that it's uh, a lot of fun until the tiger turns around and eats them it's a very dangerous thing that we're playing with and I, I hope it I hope it ends well but uh, it could end very badly indeed and uh, you know it's uh, a reprise of the late 1960s and 1970s, when this sort of thing swept the country, uh, we managed to diffuse it then. Uh, uh, but let's see if we could do it again. Uh, Joe Biden yesterday in Philadelphia, I thought he was pitch perfect in offering a siren song of the sentimental barbarian. Listen to what Joe Biden had to say. The country is crying out for leadership, leadership that can unite us, leadership that brings us together. Leadership that can recognize pain and deep grief of communities that have had a knee on their neck for a long time. We have to be vigilant about the violence that's being done by this incumbent president to our economy and to the pursuit of justice. 
It's Trump who is the uh, perpetrator of violence. And uh, despite the fact that Joe Biden has been in public office for nearly four decades, uh, the uh, responsible communities uh, for some of the violence are not responsible because they've had a knee on their neck for a long time. Yeah, it's um, this this whole episode is fraught with ironies, tragedies, uh, and <laughs> a lot of misinformation. You know, it used to be that we could have some faith in the idea that one is innocent until proven guilty. There's a lot of uh, a lot of uh, doubt surrounding what officer or former officer Chauvin uh, did. Uh, uh, I'm not going to get into that now. It's complicated, but people should not, uh, I think, should not take the narrative at face value. It may turn out that it's, uh, as in the case of uh, Michael Brown and Ferguson, that it's much more complicated than than we think. But um, you know, Joe Biden, uh, he, you know, he many years ago he had his lips. Uh, surgically sewn to the public teat of government administration. And, uh, uh, you know, I think these people, they, they, they at a, an early age, they go into what is, you know, laughably called public service, which means it's servicing them. Uh, be, they become rich uh, and corrupt. He's, you know, the idea that, that uh, Joe Biden, who's on the wrong side of the threshold of civility, could offer anything resembling leadership is um, uh, almost sad. In my, in my opinion, his campaign is a species of elder abuse. But um... <laughs> uh, You have uh, some infighting happening among Democrats in big states with big cities that have big problems like uh, de Blasio and Cuomo in New York in terms of the mm-hmm. police response. But uh, with respect to the president, I mean, so they, they, this is a moment for him to, to lead. Uh, yes. And, and he has to... Uh, make sure that he is on the side of uh of 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 peace of of peace in the streets but he can't overreact either and so his your position on his invocation of a willingness to scramble the u.s military if necessary is that i'm fine with that as a rhetorical position as a motivator for states and localities but i don't really Mm -hmm. want to see the 101st airborne on the streets of chicago yeah. Well, no, no one does. And, uh, you know, but maintaining public order is uh, absolutely critical. If the governors uh, can't do it, then the federal government has to do it. No, I wouldn't want to see the uh, the Insurrection Act of 1807 uh, invoked to, to um, uh, insinuate the military onto our streets either. But it is a it is a tool, and uh, he's, I think he's made it quite clear that he is on the side of civilization, property rights, ordinary citizens, not the uh, savages and the cynical looters who are destroying property across the country. And um, if he is he if he has to do that, um, uh, otherwise uh, the, the 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 electorate will uh, will. View him out. Uh, do, do you come, do you, come November? Do you see this as uh, other many commentators have suggested as potentially analogous to '68 for Nixon? Yes, absolutely. You know, I think that the uh, it says uh, Yogi Berra put it it's deja vu all over again. Uh, I think it's it's very analogous to '68, and um, uh, the, the president has to uh, has to be a law and order president. That's uh, 
it doesn't mean that he has to be draconian, uh, but he has to. Um, this is this is um, critical. It's like it's a national security issue. We cannot allow um, people to uh, smash stores, burn police stations, and uh, otherwise conduct themselves like barbarians. What what is, uh, just a more decoding work here? If you could help me do some sleuthing. Uh, now is a time to lead, but also a time to listen, Roger. It's a time to listen. I'm listening. I, I hear you. But what I hear when I hear politicians or left wing uh, Marxist pundits on cable news shows say it's a time to listen. I, I, I hear them saying it's a time to agree. It's a time to bend the knee. It's a time to uh, to 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 appease. Well, see, I think uh, the the. the the calculated, cynical exploitation of uh, uh, George Floyd's death uh, is really repellent. Um, uh, the police officer responsible or the police officer involved in, in his death um, was instantly dismissed from the force. He's been charged with um, third-degree murder and, and manslaughter. Uh, we'll see if he's guilty. You know, we haven't seen the um, we haven't seen the police body camera uh, footage yet. Uh, the, the, the whole medical situation, um, uh, I believe, is far more complicated than the narrative uh, would would allow. But this is, um, you know, uh, the, the, I I really don't understand why people uh, should think that the appropriate response to this fellow's death is uh, widespread may and, and, and looting. These are not protests. They're not, they're not, it's not a civil rights or a, a race riot. It is um, hooliganism. He is Roger Kimball, editor of The New Criterion. Roger, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us. Sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We've uh, discussed the topic before, what happens when science becomes politics by other means. This is remarkable. Speaking before a House of Lords Science and Technology Committee, Neil Ferguson from Imperial College of London, Infamy, admitted that uh, basically, um, you know, the Swedish model uh, is getting the same effect as the lockdowns, if not better. Saying this, lockdown is a very crude policy. And what we'd like to do is have a much more targeted approach that does not have the same economic impacts. Noting that um, Sweden's uh, a, a choice of uh, a policy short of a full lockdown went uh, a long way to achieving the same effect. I suspect um, under any scenario, levels of transmission, a number of cases will remain relatively flat between now and September. The real uncertainty then is that if there are larger policy changes in September. Of course, we move into a time of year when respiratory viruses tend to transmit slightly better and so forth. This is a man who uh, whose model predicted 90,000 deaths in Sweden. They've had 4,000, you know, but look off by a factor of 20 for him. That's pretty close compared to his previous models 
which we've talked about before, uh, where he was, uh, you know, predicting, for example, in 2009, 65,000 people would die from swine flu the, in, just in Britain. The final figure was fewer than 500. Ferguson warned the government 150,000 people could die uh, in uh, 2001 uh, during the um, mad cow and 200 people died. And uh, this is the guy that was, whose motto was the basis for so many of the lockdowns. You still have politicians, including President Trump, repeating his projected death total for America of 2.2 million. Had we not done what we did, 2.2 million Americans would have died. Maybe it was a bad idea to put Johnny Jacobs from Airplane in the control room. Johnny, what can you make out of this? This? Well, I can make a cap or a brooch or pterodactyl. Um. Maybe uh, Ferguson just wants to see his lava more during the second wave in the fall so he's not locked down and uh, publicly shamed for breaking curfew. A curfew imposed because of his model. Remarkable. Uh, And it continues. The Lancet, which is a uh, well-respected medical journal, published a study purporting to find 30% increased risk of death for hospitalized COVID-19 patients treated with uh, hydroxychloroquine. And uh, the Washington Post uh, reported this in almost celebratory fashion. Study says drug hailed by Trump is harmful. In an open letter to the Lancet's editors and the study's authors, some 120 doctors, statisticians, epidemiologists write that the headlines about the study have caused considerable concern to participants and patients enrolled in randomized controlled trials evaluating the drugs. Remember, this is still in clinical trial for evaluation as a potential antiviral. Thus, many research have scrutinized the data, and the scrutiny has raised both metallurgical and methodological and uh, data integrity concerns. The uh, data was uh, collected by a public health analytics company that admits that mistakes were made. For example, they first say uh, hospitals don't allow them to share individual patient data, but they weren't even willing to share data that was aggregated by the hospital. Uh, The average reported dose of hydroxychloroquine was 100 milligrams higher than the FDA guidelines. So either it was being misreported or for some reason doctors were prescribing a unusually powerful dose of hydroxychloroquine. Uh, The others on Friday, uh, 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 last Friday, also corrected some errors. They noted, for instance, that a hospital in Asia was lumped in with Australian death totals, which is why for a time there, the Australian death totals in the study were higher than the Australian death totals as reported. Nevertheless, they're standing by the results. The uh, decision to publish the study with a little, uh, this is Alicia Finley writing in the Wall Street Journal, the decision to publish the study with little apparent scrutiny also suggests politics may be influencing its scientific judgment. Oh, perish the thought. You know, science is a matter of peer review. It's forever. Its exploration is um, infinite, right? Um, an unsigned editorial in May criticized President Trump's inconsistent and incoherent national response to the pandemic and asserted Americans must put a president in the White House come January 2021 who will understand that public health should not be guided by partisan politics. 
that was published in the Lancet. Huh. So just in terms of any indication, they may have a particular conclusion they're trying to work to rather than letting the science speak for themselves, speak for itself and scientists to peer review the science so that it speaks for itself with some confidence. Uh, really, uh, it brings me to this piece that uh, Tyler Cohen wrote for uh, Bloomberg, Tyler Cohen, George Mason University professor, Marginal Revolution blog, which I mentioned before. We've had a number of guests who are contributors to that excellent blog if you're interested in economics. And he, uh, he notes what Americans are and are not freaked out about, uh, asking essentially, is America unified only in its outrage? HCQ, you know, we got to stick it to the president. So that's something that uh, whips people into a frenzy. But the question I've asked, too, America's governor, Andrew Cuomo, made the catastrophic decision of any governor, although he wasn't alone, in returning infected patients to nursing homes where, as we know, a plurality of the deaths have occurred, 44 percent in America. 40,000-plus deaths, you might think, uh, writes Cohen, that would be a major national scandal, but so far the response has been subdued. No Ralph Nader-like crusader has made cleaning up the nursing homes his or her political cause. And um, he also makes the salient point that of those 40,000 deaths, surely a considerable number are African-American, although the data by race is difficult to come by. This could be an issue for Black Lives Matter, but somehow it isn't. Why? There's uh, no great political capital to be earned by making this an issue as compared to uh, police brutality or institutional racism, systemic racism, an issue. And, and using the George Floyd case, of course, as the as the beginning, middle and end of the argument. Hmm. Uh, and he goes through the uh, some of the COVID responses to the whole polarization of the mask issue. How freaked out will the American public be if the riots continue throughout the summer? Or what if a violent organized domestic group were to launch a systemic systematic attack on the White House and its Secret Service protectors? My honest answer is I don't know and neither does anyone else. And I would add too uh, how the virus returns to the extent it does in the fall into the winter as well. As we're still learning about this virus on a daily basis based on science and how reliable is the science are we learning what is indeed the best estimate of our knowledge or is it uh, as i said previously the, the lancet editors and researchers working to a political conclusion rather than a scientific one couple times this is dan prof The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show and uh, a little bit more from Joe Biden, his big speech in Philadelphia at City Hall yesterday on all things George Floyd and protesting and rioting related. Here's what Joe Biden won't do. I won't traffic in fear and division. I won't fan the flames of hate. 
I'll seek to heal the racial wounds that have long plagued our country, not use them for political gain. He's had 40 years uh, in public office to do that, just about. But OK, so that's what he's going to do. Um, he's not going and, and also what he's not going to do. He's not going to fan the flames of division. Uh, Joe Biden, same speech. I ask every American. I mean this in the bottom. Of my, I ask every American. Look at where we are now and think anew. Is this who we are? Is this who we want to be? Is this who we want to pass on to our children and our grandchildren? Fear, anger, finger pointing, rather than the pursuit of happiness, incompetence and anxiety, self-absorption, selfishness? Or do we want to be the America we know we can be? The America we know in our hearts we could be and should be. I love the uh, call for unity through division, uh, much like we're going to get to a place of love through hate. This is the um, contradiction of the left, and it was uh, more subtle from Biden than from some, but it was unmistakable nonetheless. For more on this and a couple of other topics, please to be joined again by George Perry, former federal and state prosecutor, regular contributor to the Philadelphia Inquirer, and he blogs at knowledgeisgood.net. George, thanks for being with us again. Appreciate it. Hey, Dan. Great to be with you. Uh, so uh, Joe Biden uh, yesterday, you know, Trump is the problem. Trump is actually the one committing violence. He, that was the only person he mentioned uh, specifically as uh, a purveyor of violence, not those who actually rioted or, for example, the uh, individual who tried to rob firing line gun shop in Philadelphia and was <laughs> killed by the shop owner, Greg Isabella, defending himself and his property. Yeah. Well, look, uh, Biden, the only thing astonishing about Biden's speech was that he was able to give it. You know, he, he, he didn't sound like the the befuddled old man that he, he comes across as it, it, from his bunker talks. But anyhow, Trump is the only public official who has stepped up to say what needs to be said and taken the actions that need to be taken. The rioting and the looting, and I call it the social justice looting that we have had say, here in Philadelphia, is the direct result of progressive leadership. We have a progressive mayor, a progressive district attorney, and a progressive teenage police chief who we just brought in from Portland, Oregon, who have basically taken a passive approach to the the rioting and, and the looting. And if you don't oppose this kind of behavior, you're going to get more of it. It, it was, and it's happened here in Philadelphia and elsewhere in the United States where you have the same kind of leadership. It, it was a odd statement that Jim Kenney, the Philadelphia mayor, made in response to the shooting I just mentioned. Greg Isabel, the owner of this gun shop in Philadelphia, defended himself and killed a uh, intruder. Uh, the the um, the police commissioner, we do not endorse any or can we do not endorse or condone any form of vigilante justice or taking the law into one's own hands. Kenny said he was deeply troubled by the incident, but he added that looting has consequences. You know, they want to be on all sides of the issue. They want to be uh, for law and order, except when they're not. And uh, that sort of passivity or mixed messaging is equivalent to passivity. And it begets the problems you described. Yeah. I mean, you know, well, Kenny, first of all, is is mentally challenged. Um, But the, the problem is, and it's not just confined to Philadelphia. The, the real problem is 
if you look at all of the cities where this rioting and looting is going on, they are cities that have the same kind of leadership, the same political persuasion as we have here in Philadelphia, and they are passive. Uh, the police have yet to be effectively deployed in Philadelphia. They're they're starting to figure out what's supposed to be happening. I got to tell you, I have a lot of friends, retired cops uh, here in Philadelphia, who have been pounding my ear about how they would have handled it under Rizzo and and all in prior mayors who knew how to run a city. And their whole thing is the, our police department here in Philadelphia has not been properly deployed because the leadership doesn't know what it's doing. And frankly, the cops don't feel that if they take aggressive action to deal with the issue, that they're going to have backing from the leadership. And that's a major problem here. It's certainly a problem in New York City yeah. and elsewhere. It's a, it's uh, a, why a lot of places. Why should they go out of their way to do anything when they don't have any leadership? Uh, I want to pick it up there with George Perry, former federal and state prosecutor, back with more on the uh, civil unrest right after this. Political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. We're talking to George Perry, former federal and state prosecutor, regular contributor to the Philadelphia Inquirer, blogs at knowledgeisgood.net. And uh, the state of affairs in Philadelphia you were describing before the break, George, is at this point, is there consideration for the National Guard to be activated and deployed in Philadelphia? Well, they're already here. They uh, are. In a very limited capacity. Uh, there's, <laughs> they're guarding police headquarters, but they're not out patrolling. They're not out actively engaging with the rioters. The high-end stores in Center City have been pretty much looted and emptied out. So the initial impetus for the looting and the rioting has gone away. There has been, this is a new development, with groups going out into the suburbs to do their looting out there. Whether or not they're meeting with any kind of meaningful opposition is yet to be seen because it kind of caught everybody by surprise. But within the city of Philadelphia, what we have now mostly are the Black Lives Matter and the young liberal leftists who are marching more or less peacefully. So whether it's going to get going again, the, the looting and the rioting is going to get going again remains to be seen. I don't think the looting is going to start up again until the stores shelves are restocked and then who knows what could happen. I mean, there is no realistic opposition to what has been going on, though. Uh, I wanted to get to, as a, a former federal and state prosecutor, I wanted to get your review of the uh, uh, Hennepin County state's attorney's uh, handling of the the Derek Chauvin murder charges, uh, uh, third degree murder charges to this point. Has, has this case been handled like you would have handled it in a similar powder keg as uh, a Freeman, the uh, state's attorney there is in? Look, the only way you can deal with it is you get the facts, and if the facts fit the charge, then go ahead and bring the charge. I mean, what struck me at first about the incident in Minneapolis was it was a protracted use of force right right out in the open with cameras running 
and people standing around saying, please stop, you know, take your knee off his neck. And the guy saying, I'm dying, I'm dying. I mean, that is a highly unusual situation. I have been involved in both prosecuting and defending police use of force. And usually it involves a split second decision. Do I shoot or don't I shoot? That kind of thing. But this was like nine minutes of this cop kneeling on this guy's neck. And so I didn't think that this was at all a close call. I mean, I had a, a bit of a pause when the medical examiner in Hennepin County said, well, there is no evidence of traumatic asphyxiation. And then my old pal, Michael Bodden from the New York City Medical Examiner's Office went out there, did a re-autopsy and said, oh no, this was traumatic asphyxiation. So once that was out of the way, then I think you go ahead and you bring the obvious charge. And this was a protracted killing. So I think it would be a first degree charge. Yeah. I mean, I, I, that seems to me sensible. I mean, I, that was the thing that was unnerving and jarring about it is exactly what you described. But but yet there's, there's some questions surrounding it though too. And I, I assume this will be thoroughly investigated to provide more clarity here, the seeming professional relationship the two had where they, many believe they must have known one another because they worked at the same nightclub and it's Mm -hmm. reported they worked at some of the nightclub on the same night for much of the year before the killing. Yeah. And, and the owner of that nightclub who also owns a, a radio station in Minneapolis, the La Raza Latina radio station there, the building in which that radio station is housed was also burned to the ground, which is one of the few buildings in Minneapolis that was. It just it just strikes me. I just wonder if there's something personal here and whether that must be exploited. And the other officers, too. I mean, all four of the officers are similarly racist or similarly have reckless indifference to uh, George Floyd's life. The whole thing just doesn't square, you know? Well, yeah. And the owner of the nightclub has said that, well, the decedent, worked security indoors and the police officer was a bouncer or provided outside security. But I'm sure that they came into contact with one another. Right. In terms of the motive for the killing, it could well be that that officer just didn't know any better because trust me, chokeholds and that kind of kneeling on the neck that's used by police elsewhere, I mean, in other parts of the world. I mean, they use it in Israel. They're trained to use that kind of knee on the throat or knee on the neck uh, move among the Israeli police, just as an example. So it's not like the officer was possibly, at least in his mind, was engaging in an act intended to kill. No, maybe. that effect. Right. Maybe. But I mean, it's just if you know the guy. I don't know. I'm just asking the question, but it just seems like if you know the guy, that approach and then and sitting on top of him after he's unconscious, after he had been pleading. And it just doesn't make any sense unless he's really that much. Either he hated the guy that much or he's a virulent racist or uh, how do you I mean, that move may be used elsewhere. But when somebody's unconscious and you still sit on top of him posing for the cameras almost, it was it's just bizarre. Well, look, if I was defending the case and I could easily defend that case. Number one, I would say, well, the man, according to reports, the decedent began complaining about the inability to breathe while he was still standing up. So something was going on there. 
And if he was saying that while he was still standing up and he's still saying it while he's on the ground, okay, you've got an issue there. Just what exactly was going on with this guy. But the fact that this was done out in the open and it went on for nine minutes would indicate to me that this cop thought, I'm restraining the guy, I'm keeping him in place. And he was not yeah. intending by his action to carry out a protracted killing. That would be the argument. You know, if I was the prosecutor, I would want to know, well, what was their relationship? What evidence do we have of their prior relationship at their place of work? Had they had fights? Had they had disagreements? I mean, was this personal? And as for the other cops who stood on and watched it, cops will back up other cops, especially when a crowd is gathering. They're going to present a united front. I mean, that's just a fact of life. Mm -hmm. And if those other cops thought that what this police officer was doing using a technique which had been used in the past, but well-trained police departments in this country no longer use it, but it has been used in the past. If they thought that there was something going on there that shouldn't go on, they could have intervened to stop it, but apparently they didn't see it that way. They'd probably seen this technique used before and figured, okay, we're going to keep this guy under control this way and then put him in a wagon and get him out of here. He is George Perry, former federal and state prosecutor, regular contributor to the Philadelphia Inquirer, and he blogs at knowledgeisgood.net. George, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Okay, Dan. Nice being with you. Take care. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. And as uh, states open up more of their offerings, not just businesses, but recreational spaces like golf courses and tennis courts, the rules that are promulgated from government are laughably Orwellian, if there is such a thing. David Seminera, our friend writing in the Wall Street Journal about that, where he lives in Nassau County, New York, he uh writes, perhaps only George Orwell could have dreamed up a story in which officials tell citizens how to play tennis, complete with diktats on whose balls could be touched or kicked. But this is the COVID-1984 scene that played out at Eisenhower Park on Long Island a couple of weeks ago. Standing on one of the park's tennis courts next to play at your own risk, a sign that said play at your own risk, tennis. Nassau County Executive provided in detail how tennis should be played. No doubles. Uh, insert your juvenile cloakroom joke uh, with this following sentence. Players can touch their own balls or the balls of family members, but not the balls of other opponents. You can kick the balls, but you can't touch them, warned at NASA, the Nassau County executive. It is uh, forbidden to play in a court next to another court where others are playing, even though tennis courts are 36 feet wide. <laughs> and of course, the ironies abound, the county executive uh, delivered these edicts on a court with enough reporters and officials to field six doubles teams, writes David Seminero. Courts in some cities are starting, to, uh, finally starting to open, but not in Seattle, San Francisco, Chicago, Denver, even though tennis is inherently adaptable to social distancing protocols. Pro protocols. Behind these and other COVID-19 edicts is the notion people aren't smart enough to use good judgment. Right. Of course it is. But at his club, he sees the same people playing doubles at the club every day. So he's confident that the pandemic's death total 
isn't attributable to excessive doubles play. Tennis is good for the body and mind, and those of us who play the game need it now more than ever. As Billie Jean King once said, I have to accept responsibility for the consequences every time I hit the ball, indeed. And, of course, as I mentioned before, my uh, preferred summer sport of choice, golf, same thing, right? You can drive to the course in a foursome, but you couldn't play in a foursome in Chicago and Illinois until last week. Makes no sense. You can't, four people can't social distance on, you know, a, a, a golf course that's 7,500 yards long. You know, the expanse of golf course, it doesn't take a lot of imagination or understanding to use good judgment to the extent that, by the way, that's even necessary with what we know about the virus and the relative uh, uh, infinitesimal chance of transmitting outdoors. Very limited evidence that there is any significant transmission outdoors. But none of that matters to the politicians because, you know, they uh, all are aspiring presidents of Oceana and they're working out their ink sock auditions with recreational activities. Thank you for joining us on another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Please do so again tomorrow. Fake news. He's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news.